Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you, Lord, for the day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I'm so grateful for my faith family, Lord, and I do pray that you would set joy in our hearts, Lord. Joy is more than happiness that comes and goes with circumstances, Lord. Joy is a a gift of your Spirit, a fruit of your Spirit, Lord. And so we pray, God, that as you reside in our hearts, what would exude out of us is true joy. Father, from the beginning of time, from the moment you made us in the garden and we fell, you knew what would happen. You had a plan in place even before then, God. But you it revealed that to us while we fell in the garden, that you planned on saving and reaching and loving. And you've done that through sending your Son. There is no greater gift. And may that fill our hearts with true and genuine joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So the word Advent, I had to look it up because as I said, I I grew up in a a church that we had an Advent season, but I didn't know what it meant. I thought it meant four Sundays prior to Christmas. Sort of does, but not really. The definition of Advent, as per Google, so you know it must be true, right? (laughs) That's what Abraham Lincoln said. You can trust everything you read on the internet. A quote from Abraham Lincoln. No, I think this is a pretty legit definition. The word Advent means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. The arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And in... God coming to earth, Jesus Christ being born in a manger, we have all three of those things. A notable person, a notable thing, and a notable event. Jesus, of course, being a notable person in that He was unique among all mankind, for He is God-man, fully God, fully man, the only to ever have been that. And so that makes it very notable. In Jesus, we have a notable thing in that He came to die, or the reason He came was to die for our sin. And in Jesus, we have a notable event in that creation had waited for this moment since Adam fell in the garden, as I alluded to in my prayer. There's in, in, the, in the theological terms, it's known as the Proto-Evangelion. It's when the, the, the Gospel is first revealed. And it is in the curse that is given from God. In Genesis chapter 3, He tells the woman, you shall bear a son. Your seed will, will be our deliverer. You can go and read it for yourself. And in essence, that as He tells Satan, he tells Satan that um, you will bruise his heel but He shall crush your head. And in that, we have the redemptive plan given first in Genesis chapter 3. 
In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of Me. The Scriptures are what testify to the fact that Jesus was going to come. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to examine the Scriptures. We're going to search the Scriptures. And we're going to see how God worked that as God worked with the nation of Israel, He spoke of the Messiah through the prophets anywhere from 400 to 1,500 years before Christ came. Throughout the Old Testament, there are many references to the coming Messiah. Tonight, or this morning rather, we're going to look at nine, just nine of them. This is what we'll look at. The Messiah will come from the line of Abraham. The Messiah will be a descendant of Isaac and Jacob. The Messiah will be of David's lineage. The Messiah will be born of a virgin. The Messiah will be called out of Egypt. The Messiah's birth will be accompanied with sorrow and suffering. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah will enter the temple. And the Messiah will be of the tribe of Judah. And so what we're going to do is we're going to to look at each one of these things and we're going to look at where in the Old Testament it speaks of these things and then we'll see how they're fulfilled in Christ by looking at the New New Testament reference in Matthew and in Luke. If you're on the fence about whether or not Jesus truly is the one that God had planned to send, I think by the end of today, hopefully your questions will be answered. Because I've got a statistic, a fact at the end of our message today that will just blow your mind. So what I'm going to do and what we did today, I'm going to actually take advantage of our technology. As we look at these nine things, I'm going to have the the Old Testament reference up here. So you're not flipping through your Bible in all different locations, and, and some of the books are hard to find anyway. So we'll see the Old Testament reference up here, and then I'll say where the New Testament reference is, and we'll read, the, we'll read it together. You'll be able to see it in your Bible. Okay, makes sense? You with me? So let's look at these each one in turn. The first one I said, the Messiah will come from the line of Abraham. So go ahead. If you, uh, All right. This is Genesis chapter 12. This is the Lord speaking to Abram. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, don't change it just yet, but you should see it. That, that's the, la- the last line is the critical line. It's Genesis 12, 1 through 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the reference to the fact that the Messiah was going to come. We see through the line of Abraham, certainly not all the people of the earth were blessed by him. Because as he grew, the nation of Israel grew, but certainly as we see Isaac and Ishmael split off and then Ishmael and his lineage goes a different way, that 
line is not blessed. But this reference way back in Genesis chapter 12, speaking the truth as God's Word is the truth, in you all, and we know what all means, right? All means all. That's all all means. All the families of the earth will be blessed. So now look at your Bible in Matthew chapter 1. And it's simply in verse 1. How does Jesus fulfill that the Messiah will be of the line of Abraham? Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of who? Abraham. So by, him, by Abraham's, by the promise God gave back there in Genesis chapter 12, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the, at the beginning of the book of the Matthew is the lineage tracing back to, from, from Jesus to Abraham. And so it's a provable fact that Jesus was of the line of Abraham fulfilling what was spoken in Genesis chapter 12. The second one we're going to look at is the Messiah will be a descendant of Isaac and Jacob. Go ahead. So this is Genesis chapter 17, verse 19. It says, Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with him descendants after him. See that? So the Messiah, the one that is to come, as spoken in this promise in Genesis chapter 7, God once again speaking to Abraham of the promise that he would bear a son. He tells her, tells him that Sarah is going to bear, bear you a son and his name shall be Isaac. And then it says, I will establish my covenant with him for how long? An everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. There's only one way it could be everlasting, and that is if it's of God. For if it's of man, there, it is impossible to be everlasting. An everlasting covenant with his descendants, with Isaac, with Isaac and with his descendants after him. Okay, so where is that fulfilled in the New Testament then? Verse 2. This, we're looking again. This is the, that the Messiah will be to the descendant of Isaac and Jacob. Verse 2 of Matthew chapter 1. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. So once again, provable, the lineage of Jesus given in Matthew, and the, the whole reason Matthew wrote his book. I mean, if you look at Matthew, there are more references to the Old Testament in the book of Matthew than any other New Testament book, because the intent and the purpose of Matthew writing the book was to prove to the Jewish nation that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. And so he very often goes to the Old Testament. But now we see even in verse 2, we're into the second verse, and two prophecies are already fulfilled. He was of the line of Abraham, and he was the line of Isaac and Jacob. Third, we're going to continue down the, the, the lineage here. The third point or, that we wanted to look at, or prophecy fulfilled, is that the Messiah will be of David's lineage. Go ahead. This is Jeremiah 23.5. And it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch, notice capital B, a branch of righteousness, a king, notice capital K, 
a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment on the righteousness in the earth. It was interesting. We're studying the book of Ezra on Wednesday night, and we read a letter um, that Artaxerxes wrote to uh, to give Ezra permission to go ahead and rebuild uh, spiritually in the land of Israel. And it says, as as Artaxerxes the king writes this letter, uh, he he says, Artaxerxes, a king of kings. And we just paused for a minute and said, boy, did he have another thing coming, right? It said that he called himself the king of kings. Not so, Artaxerxes, my friend. Well, he was a king of kings. He had kings under him. But it wasn't the capital king, capital K, king of kings, that we have in Jesus Christ of whom he reigns over all. This, this branch of righteousness, it says, I will raise to David. So of the line of David, a branch of righteousness is going to extend away. Think of a branch reaching, reaching to save somebody who has lost. You throw a branch out in the river if they're floating down the river. A branch of righteousness or a king who shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness. Only God can execute both judgment and righteousness to the full. So the Messiah will be of the David's lineage. So jump down to verse 6 in Matthew chapter 1, continuing on with the, the, the lineage and the heritage. It says, And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And so we see as the lineage continues, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and continues on down, you know, 14 generations later, we get to David, probably the most well-known of the kings of Israel. And the Messiah is of his lineage. One man so far fulfilling three different prophecies. He's of the Abraham, he's of the lineage of Isaac, he's of the lineage of Jacob. And you're like, well, that's no big deal. I mean, they were just, well, no, that is a big deal because they had many kids and they could have been of any, you know, the, it is a big deal that God orchestrated it this way. All right, if those three didn't impress you, this one might. And if it doesn't, it should. The fourth one we'll look at is the Messiah will be born of a virgin. Wrap your head around that for a second. So anywhere from, this is roughly a thousand years, 800 to a thousand years before Christ was born, a bold proclamation is made that the Messiah is going to come to this earth in a way that is different than any other person ever has. Any other person ever has. That he would be born of a virgin. One, and that literally means one that has not had relations. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, this is one we're probably familiar with. Therefore, the Lord Himself, this is coming from the hand of God, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and His name shall be called Emmanuel. The word there, virgin, is, is the original word is Alma. And it's used, I think, seven times, this being the last of the seven times. And every time, it is not just referred to a young lady. It is referred to a pure, chaste young lady. One who had not had relations. How is that possible? 
Well, we're going to read it here in Matthew in just a second exactly how it happened. But it is interesting to note, if you go back to that account in Genesis when uh, we fell in the garden, God makes an interesting statement. He says, of the one who is to come, that he shall be of the seed of woman. He doesn't say that he shall be of the seed of man, which is, I mean, I'm not going to go into all the biology here, but that's the way it works. So even back in the garden, he knew exactly how it was going to happen. And he makes an interesting statement to say that he shall be born of the seed of woman. Well, let's see how this unfolds. Look at Matthew chapter eight, uh, 1, verse 18. We're going to read a few verses now. Story that we're familiar with. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before they had relations, before they were intimate, she was found with child, how? Of the Holy Spirit. So that is how the seed of woman is fulfilled. That is how this Isaiah prophecy is fulfilled. She was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. See, Joseph even was of the line of David. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In those days, a little bit different than you and I today, and in the culture today, everybody just, I read a statistic today that most people exchange house keys after somewhere between 12 and 14 dates. That's the, that's the common thing in this day. Sad. They went through a system where very often marriages would have been arranged first and foremost, but when they became what we would call engaged, they called it betrothed. It was a much more serious commitment. As a couple became betrothed to one another, that set the wheels in motion for the day of the wedding to come. And it was that the man was to go and prepare a house. That was his role in that time of betrothal. It was his job to prepare the house in which they were going to live. And so he would go and build the house. And when the house was prepared, that's when the wedding would happen. They didn't set a date and, and just, you know, drive to it or whatever. It was, it was, it was a systematic thing that they would walk through. And it was a much greater commitment than you and I. Engagements are broken regularly in our society today. In order for them to break engagement and to break betrothal in that day, it was actually they had to sign a certificate of divorce because they intended on being married. It was a very serious thing. And so when Joseph finds out that Mary is suddenly pregnant, his, his mind is, and he's a good man, well, she's obviously broken her betrothal. She, she must have made a mistake or, or, or done something that should not have been done. And so it, Joseph, being a good man, says, I'm going to put her away quietly. I'm going to, we'll sign the, the, the seal of, you know, the, the certificate of divorce and, and we'll just move on with our lives. And I'm not going to make a public spectacle of her. I'm not going to do anything like that. And as he's thinking these things, God himself intervenes and says, no, 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 no. Joseph, this is, this is what we planned. This is, this is all okay. 
For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And that's the only way that the Messiah could be both God fully and man fully. Verse 21 says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and here's our quote from Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And if you're skeptical about that, you may say, hey, wait a minute. It says in Isaiah that his name shall be Emmanuel, and it says in Matthew his name shall be Jesus. So that's a contradiction. How is that even possible? Well, hold on a second. What does the name Emmanuel mean? In fact, Matthew tells us. It means God with us. And certainly that is what happened when Jesus came to this earth, born of a virgin. It was Jesus, the Son of God, leaving His throne and leaving His robe and leaving His royal crown and setting those things aside and taking on the fragile mantle of man. It's... uh, What's the word? Philippians talks about it in chapter 2, the, the kenosis, right? Is that it? I can't remember. It's, it's Jesus taking on the, the appearance of sinful man. It's that He condescended to us. And that is the right word. It sounds uh, appalling to our ears. But that is the right word. God the Father, God Jesus the Son, condescended and became like one of us. The name Emmanuel means God with us. What does the name that we translate Jesus? They, in fact, would have tra- translated Yahshua or jo- Joshua. What does that mean? Well, it's a, it's a, a kind of a mixture of two words. It was Jehovah and the word Shua. The word Jehovah obviously meaning God. God, and then Shua means saves. And so they would take, they would take the two words, Jehovah, Jehovah, Shua, and they would contract it or smash it together and come with Joshua, Joshua, meaning God saves. And certainly as Christ came with that name, rightfully so, he is the one who came and saved. Number five that we're looking at today. The Messiah will be called out of Egypt. In Hosea, just one short verse, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. His son being, of course, Jesus. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 now. Go to the next chapter and verse 13. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. How did the Messiah fulfill fulfill this? I thought He was born in Bethlehem. How did He come out of Egypt? Matthew 2.13 Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared. This is after Jesus was born. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and there and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and here's our quote from Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. 
That's five. Five prophecies fulfilled of the Messiah. Number six, the Messiah's birth will be accompanied with sorrow and suffering. Our text from the Old Testament is Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. It says this, Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, how does that all fit in? We're talking about Rachel. How does this fit in to the fulfilling of the prophecy for the Messiah? Um, picking up just about where we left off. In fact, where we did leave off. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Herod was a crazy, in like literally, legit insane ruler. He had done some good things. He certainly built up the temple while he was there in Jerusalem. But he did not like anybody questioning his authority. And when he had heard from the wise men that there was a new king in town, this Jesus, he inquired, saying that he was going to go and worship him. But the, the wise men got, got word through Jesus or through God in a dream to go a different way and to leave Herod hanging. And so now it says when Herod saw that he was deceived, he goes, and what does he do? He kills every baby two years and under, every male child two years and under in all of Bethlehem and the surrounding regions. Insane. Why did he do that? Well, because he didn't want his authority questioned. But God, even in that, had a greater plan, fulfilling prophecy. Verse 17 says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So even in the destruction of these children, a prophecy of the coming Messiah fulfilled. Number seven, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. I could have written, I could have done a whole sermon on this. Charles Spurgeon does a fantastic sermon on just this one verse. Many people have spoken much of it. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. We go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are a little among the thousands of Judah, meaning the various cities, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one, capital O, one to be ruler, capital R, in Israel, who, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. The plan had been in place, and we see at least from Genesis chapter 3, but from the foundation of the earth, and even before that Christ would come and be born there in Bethlehem, a, a city a little city among the thousands of Judah, spoken of hundreds of years, six to seven hundred years before Jesus was born, telling us where exactly He would be born. Flip over to Luke now. Luke chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1. And this is fascinating because Joseph and Mary were not living in Bethlehem. 
They, they were in Nazareth. They were in Galilee. That's where they had decided, that's where Joseph was building the house. How do we get them, the one now pregnant with God, how do we get her to Bethlehem? Watch. God work His magic. That's the wrong word. Sorry. Watch God orchestrate. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. I think in the King James it says taxed. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was the how of the house and lineage of David. David was of Bethlehem to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife who, who, wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So, the ruler of the known world at that time, Caesar Augustus, gets something stuck in his craw to say, I'm not quite making enough money. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to impose a tax. And we're not just going to tax people where they're at, because then how do we know exactly who we have? Everybody's got to go to their hometown to be counted so that we know we have the, the right amount of money coming in. So he issues this decree that forces... Joseph to get up and go home back to Bethlehem. What a glorious thing. And there, of course, is where Christ is born, fulfilling Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth shall from old, from everlasting. Now, it's interesting. What does the word Bethlehem mean? And maybe you have this in your notes or whatever, but it's important to note. The word Beth or Bethel means house of in, in the original language, house of something. Well, ham, and it's not ham like bacon ham. It's actually the word is bread. House of bread. House of bread. Well, certainly in John, in John chapter 6, what did Jesus say? I am the bread of life. So appropriate that he would come from Bethlehem. But it's also interesting to note that's not the only way that the word Bethlehem is translated. It is also translated house of war. For David was a man of war. That's why he was not permitted to build the temple. It also means house of war. What else did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10? Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So very appropriate that the Messiah of the world would fulfill both meanings of the name of the word Bethlehem on which he was born. Continuing to move, verse uh, the, the eighth one we will look at is the Messiah will enter the temple. It says prophetically that the Messiah will enter the temple. This is important to you and I. Why? Because today there is no temple. In fact, there has not been a temple since 70 A.D. when the Romans destroyed it. And so, either the Messiah has yet to come, as the, the Jewish people would believe, or he had come prior to 70 AD. 
So this is important for us to see that there is a prophecy given in the Old Testament that the Messiah would enter the temple. We see this in Malachi chapter 3. Looking at your screen, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Speaking of John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. There it is. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. He was bringing the new covenant. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there it is in Malachi, 400 years prior, or more than 400 years prior to Christ's coming, a, a, a prophecy given that is fulfilled in Jesus. How do we see that? When does Jesus enter the temple? Well, certainly many times, but the first time he did was in verse 25 of chapter 2 of Luke. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. Simeon, this faithful guy serving in the temple, working around the temple, got a message from the Holy Spirit that he wasn't going to die until the Christ had come, the Messiah. So verse 27, so he came by the Spirit into the temple. He just shows up. And when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, the child would get circumcised on the eighth day there in the temple. It says that Simeon, in verse 28, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, and then we'll, we'll, we'll drop it there. The point is, Simeon meets Jesus in the temple, fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3. The last one we'll look at. The Messiah will be of the tribe of Judah. And the way I ordered these was so that you wouldn't have to be flipping back and forth. We just read through the Matthew and now we're reading through the Luke account. That's the the reason I chose this order. But in Genesis 49.10, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That is the ruling hand. The ruling hand, or the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him be the obedience of the people. Well, I thought his name was Emmanuel. I thought his name was Jesus. Now we referred to him as Shiloh. What does that mean? Well, that wasn't his name, but it certainly is who he was. Shiloh means he who is right or he whose right it is, rather. He whose right it is. And that was always understood to be the Messiah, the one that would come to save. And so here we see from the line of Judah that that his Messiah will come from him. So Luke chapter 3, flip over one chapter in verse 33, Luke gives his lineage. And in verse 33, we see the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. Jesus Christ fulfilling that he would be of the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Judah, of the tribe of Judah, from the house of Bethlehem, that there would be weeping and wailing with his birth. We've looked at nine different prophecies. What are the odds? What are the odds of one man fulfilling those nine prophecies? I don't know. It's a big number. Huge number. 
And there is somebody that has done some math, and I thought I'd share that with you. Those of you that aren't so much into history that do like the math and science, you'll like this part. I didn't, the, the, the gentleman that did all the work, he didn't look at nine different prophecies. He looked at just eight. What, is the, what are the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of the messianic prophecies, the prophecies of the Savior to come? In 1957, Moody Press in Chicago, Illinois, published a book by Professor Peter W. Stoner called Science Speaks, an evaluation of certain Christian evidences. Stoner introduces the chapter on the Christ of prophecy with a salient quote from John 5.39. That's where we begin today. Search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and they are that which testify of Me. And we'll go back to that passage in just a minute. In this book, on page 71, Stoner notes, I'm making use of the well-known principle of probability. If the chance of one thing happening is one in M and the chance of another thing, an independent thing happening, is one in N, then the chance that they both shall happen is one in M times N. You with me? How many people have I lost so far? Okay, that's, that's your real basic math. Probability. One thing may happen. And here, let's think of it this way. Suppose one man in every ten is bald. I like that. And one, in, one man in every hundred has lost a finger. I'm good. Then one man in every 1,000, the product of 10 times 100, is both bald and has lost a finger. With me? Now, I don't know if those know, though that's actually true. That's just an example. So in the foreword of his book... Um, in the forward of to his book, Harold, this other guy, Harold, can't read it, Hartzler, a PhD, the secretary treasurer to American Scientific Affiliation, writes the following: the manuscript, speaking of what we're reading from, the manuscript Science Speaks has been carefully reviewed by a committee of American Scientific Affiliation members and executive council, and has been found in general to be dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. The mathematical analysis included and based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound, and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a pop proper and convincing way. Okay, so in the foreword of the book, uh, somebody who knew how to do these things well looked at the math that Professor Stoner did, and he said his math is spot on. Okay, this is a trustworthy source. Now, Professor Stoner chose eight different um, prophecies than the ones we've looked at today, but the numbers would be similar. We can surmise that the odds to be roughly the same. Let's look at one example that he did. He did do the same that we did, and that is Micah chapter 5, verse 2, uh, speaking of Bethlehem. Uh, it says in Micah 5, 2, but thou Bethlehem, uh, you Bethlehem, Ephrath, Ephrathath, um, Though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee he shall come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler of Israel. So this is that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. It says, now how do you figure out the probability? It says, this is the way. To arrive at the answer, Stoner started with the average population of Bethlehem from the days of the prophet Micah to the present time and divided it by the average population of the earth for the same period it was discovered that the ratio was 1 to 280,000. Since that time, the earth has had an average population of 2 billion people. 
So the answer would be one man in 7,150 divided by 2 billion, or one man in 2.8 times 10 to the fifth power born in Bethlehem. When you see to the fifth power, that's how many zeros are behind it. 2.8 times 10 with five zeros behind it. A large number that one man would be born in Bethlehem, uh, the Messiah. He then explains the probability for each of the eight. Next, if these estimates are considered fair, one man and how many men the world over would fulfill all eight prophecies. Let's run the math. We have 1 in 2.8 times 100,000 times 1,000 times 100 times 1,000 times 1,000 times 100,000 times 1,000 times 10,000. The eight different prophecies. That gives us 1 in 2.8 times 10 to the 28th power. 28 zeros. I don't think they have a number for that. Let us simplify it by calling it 1 times 10 to the 28th power. If you, I, I was going to write it out up there. I forgot to it. Just imagine one with 28 zeros after it. Big number. What are the odds that any man living from the day, from the day of these prophecies down to the present time, to get this answer, we divide our 10 to the 28th power by the total number of people who have lived since the time of these prophecies? At the time the book was published, remember that's 1957, we come up with 88 billion, or 8.8 .8 times 10 to the 10th power. To simplify it, let's round it off 10 to the 11th power. The odds of one man who lived from the time of the prophecies were made until the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies in one, is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. So, for one man to fulfill just eight prophecies, Old Testament prophecies, the odds of that happening are 1 in 10 with 17 zeros behind it. 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's a big number. You guys that aren't into math, even you can recognize that's a big number, yeah? One person fulfilling eight of the prophecies. Can we visualize this with an illustration? And maybe you've heard this illustration before. Yes. Somebody, in fact, Professor Stoner, came up with a way for us to visualize how one man would fulfill just eight prophecies. Suppose we took a professor, blindfolded him, and covered the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. The biggest state in the nation outside of Alaska. Two feet deep with silver dollars. Every square inch of Texas, two feet deep, silver dollars. Then... We put a check on one of those silver dollars and mixed them all up. The odds of one person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies would be the same as the professor selecting the silver dollar upon which we had placed the check in his first try. One man fulfilling eight prophecies. You take one silver dollar, one thin mint cookie, and toss it in, blindfold it, and go find it, and you get one try in the state of Texas, two feet deep. You ready for have your mind blown? <laughs> You're like, oh, it's already done. <laughs> Christ did not fulfill eight Old Testament prophecies. If that were true, we could see him being the Savior and Messiah. 
But in order to be the Savior and Messiah, he must fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. How many is that? 350. And one man fulfilled every single one of them. I don't know how anybody with that knowledge could question that Jesus is the Messiah. Suppose you were a highway patrol officer and you stopped a person going 80 miles an hour in a 60 mile an hour zone. So suppose the person said, I know the law, I know the law says the speed limit is 60. Therefore, I ask you not to ticket me. What would you say to the driver? I, I know the law is 60 miles an hour. Don't give me a ticket because I know it. Looking back at John chapter 5, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are which have testify of Me. And then down in verse 45, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you in Moses in whom you've put your trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for he wrote about Me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe My words? Now that you've learned the additional facts which the document which document the Messiah's identity, you might also give intellectual assent that what the Scripture says is true. In the same way the person caught speeding may give intellectual assent regarding the posted speed limit. But even as knowledge will not be enough so that the policeman decides not to write a ticket, so the knowledge of the Messiah's identity is not enough. He must also come to, come to the Messiah of whom Moses writes in order to get eternal life. And so must we all. It's not just enough just to know Him, know of Him, to know that He fulfilled all these prophecies. It's not just enough. It's that we have to come to Him. Which brings us to our first Sunday of the month and our opportunity to gather at the table at the end of His life which He created. That new covenant that He was promised to bring in which He says, My body shall be broken on behalf of you and for you. And My blood shall be shed that you might have the forgiveness of sin. We need to have more than just an intellectual knowledge understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. We need to know that we are in need of (coughs) of being saved that we are in need of rescue. And He is the One who saves through His body broken on our behalf, through His blood shed for us. For those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ already, this is a a beautiful and intimate time that we get to gather at the table in which He's called us to do these things in remembrance of Him. We remember the cross of Christ being uh, our sac- the sacrifice and fulfilling all that God had needed the requirement. 
And so, Christian, we invite you to come and partake. If you have yet to make that step of faith, first of all, I would say today's the day. Today's the day of salvation. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't just know it. Believe it. Offer your heart to Him. Accept the gift that He has freely given. And then you can join us at the table partaking of the bread and of the cup. I'm going to ask some of the guys to come forward. We're going to hand out the elements. Something new that we have this time, um, we have some people in our congregation that are um, celiac and therefore um, can't eat gluten and have never been able to partake in the bread of Christ. We have actually gluten-free um, crackers today. Uh, there, there's what's in the cup. So if that's you, you're welcome to take one of those. If you would, just take the elements and hold them. Maintain an attitude of prayer, and then we'll, I will lead us through the partaking of the elements. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. With our lives, Father, with our lives, Jesus, may we bring glory to the One who was born that man no more may die. Set this joy in our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.